mind if you take your Bibles and turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1, and we're going to, uh, Lord willing, finish up uh, what we've been looking at here in Colossians and the prayer that the Apostle Paul has been giving for these believers that he did not know, he didn't have the opportunity to minister to or to, or to meet with. And so um, what we find is that his prayer uh, given here in Colossians chapter 1 is uh, applicable to us because in many ways we're like the Colossian believers in that we've never met the Apostle Paul, we've never had the opportunity to interact with him. And so uh, we looked at uh, the thanksgiving that Paul had given in verses 3 through 8. And uh, we talked about uh, that, that particular focus of prayer that he gave in thanksgiving. And then uh, we looked at from verses 9 through what we're looking at today in verses 14. Uh, we see how he is praying for specific things for these believers. In particular, he is praying that they would grow. And so uh, what, we're, what we're looking at here is that he prays for them to grow uh, in knowledge, in actions, in strength. And then most particularly, and what we're going to look at today, is he ends with a focus on thanksgiving. So he begins by giving thanks to God for what God has done. And then as he models that for those who he's writing to, he calls them to do the same thing. So we're going to be looking at the focus of growth in thanksgiving. But let's go ahead and begin, and we'll just read the entire passage again so we can sort of set our minds at what we've been looking at for I'm not sure how long we've been going over this, but it's been several months. It's Colossians chapter 1, verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding." so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So as we come to these last few verses, verses 12 through 14, we see Paul praying for this growth for the Colossian believers in thanksgiving. He asked that they would grow in their knowledge of God, knowing him, knowing his will, that, he, that as they understood who God was, that would affect their actions and that they would act in such a way that they were fully pleasing to the Lord, that they were bearing fruit in every good work, and that that knowledge that fed into those actions would also increase. So that there's this cyclical effect that as they know God, they act in such a way that's reflective of who God is, and then that, that action drives them to know God more, which then produces more action. And so really you see how sanctification works out that way that as we know God more as we progress in our knowledge of God it will also progress in the way that we act and then we're not called to do this in our own strength but we're called to do it in dependence on the strength of God as he says in verse 11 we are strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy and so as Paul sort of wraps things up again. He, he comes to this end, and we come to verse 12, where he calls upon his readers to give thanks to the Father. And so that's what we're looking at this evening, is that Paul is praying that the Colossian believers would grow in thanksgiving. Now, again, it's important to note what's happening here. Paul is saying 
that he is praying for them. All right, we see that in verse 9. From the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you... And then he goes into these four things that we've been looking at, that they would grow in knowledge, that they would grow in actions, that they would grow in strength, and then finally that they would grow in giving thanks. He is showing that this is the prayer that he wants for these believers, that they would be thankful, that as they grow in knowledge, as they grow in their actions, as they're strengthened by God's power and they receive that from God's hands, as they grow, they're to give thanks for that growth. It is only by the grace of God that we are anything that we are today, but we should especially be grateful for how he has worked in our lives. We should be able to look back in our lives and see where we were, see how we've grown by God's grace to that point, and then we give thanks for that growth. Now, from a, um, a translation standpoint, there's a little bit of a question regarding the end of verse 11 and the beginning of verse 12. So the question is, where does the with joy belong? Does the with joy belong in verse 11, where he's saying that we're strengthened with all power for all endurance and patience with joy? In other words, is Paul trying to say that as we endure and we patiently wait for the Lord, facing the difficulties of this life, are we, is he calling us then to have joy as we do that? And that, I think, is a legitimate reading. In fact, the English Standard Version that we have here, that's how they take this. They put that, that with joy in connection with the endurance and patience. And that seems to make sense if we think about the things that Paul says elsewhere in the New Testament or that the other apostles say. James tells us that we're to count it all what? Joy. When we fall into what type of things? various temptations or difficulties in life. And so that would make sense. However, we have to realize that when we look at the manuscripts of the Greek New Testament as they were given to us, particularly the oldest manuscripts, they were written in all capitals with no spaces and no punctuation. So it's difficult to determine then where this with joy falls. And so it is legitimately... Um, also a possibility that Paul is saying, with joy we are to give thanks, or joyfully give thanks to the Father. And I, think, I think both things really could be in view here, that the, that the joy is sort of the pivot upon which we give our thanks to the Lord. As we find joy, as we endure and we patiently wait for the Lord, we pivot on that, and we see that then that drives the way in which we give thanks to God. It's not that our thankfulness to God is like, thank you, Lord, that I have to deal with this, and we sort of humdrum go through it, but rather we give thanks to God for everything that he brings across our paths. And so um, other translations translate this. For instance, the New International Version translates this passage, giving joyful thanks to the Father. And so I just highlight that, first of all, to say I, I think both, both things work, and I think ultimately Paul is calling us to the same thing, that no matter what we face in this life, we are to what? Have joy. We're to rejoice. The Scriptures say rejoice how often? Ever more. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. And so that emphasis is here. But it also, I think, is helpful for us to recognize that that again, some of the decisions that come down in the way that there are differences in translations have to do with something as simple as this. Because there's no punctuation in the original manuscripts, you just sort of see which works best. And, and when you have two equally positive options, you sort of go with what, what you feel, what, what you think is the best thing here based upon everything. And the reality is, does it really change the meaning of what Paul is trying to get across here? He's encouraging believers to be what? Joyful, no matter which verse you put it on. So it doesn't really affect the meaning. Now again, this giving thanks to the Father focuses on how often we are to give thanks. And Paul is someone who, throughout the New Testament, emphasizes the focus on thanksgiving. We see in Ephesians 5.20 that as we live our lives walking through this earth, seeing how God is working one of the responses we must have is that we are doing this, giving thanks, how often? Always. 
giving thanks always, and we give thanks for what? Everything. Always and everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if we look back, and particularly on the fact that this is coming on the heels of Paul calling on his readers to find strength from the Lord to do these things, that should immediately evoke within us a response of thanksgiving. We should give thanks that God has enabled us to do what we're called to do. The God for, who has done marvelous things for us, how can we not respond with thanksgiving for those marvelous things? If you look in the Psalms, the Psalms, which are worship, which is the hymnal of Israel, the Psalms 34 times in 33 verses command that we are to give thanks. In light of what God has done for us, we must give thanks. And so as we grow in thanksgiving, we need to give thanks for our growth. Give thanks that he is helping us to, to increase in knowledge, to walk in a manner fully pleasing of him, to be strengthened with all power. Those are all God's works within us. And our response must be, as we do those things, that as we do them, we give thanks to God. But then Paul goes in and speaks more specifically about some other areas in which we are to give thanks. And we're called to give thanks, first of all, for our inheritance. Giving thanks to the Father, he says in verse 12, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now, there's a lot there that Paul sort of puts together on the end of this phrase. And so I want us to sort of walk through those things. It is appropriate for Paul to pray that we give thanks. We must give thanks as those things are in operation with us. But we also give thanks because God showers us with the lavish riches of his grace. Notice what he says. He has qualified us. That idea there means that we have been made fit or that we are, um, we are adequate. Now, now think, think about what Paul is saying there. You are made fit or you are adequate to receive an inheritance with the rest of the saints. Now, notice how he says this. Is this something that we have done by our own doing? Who is the one who has qualified us? Do we qualify ourselves? No, it is the Father who has qualified us. He is the one, by His grace, who has worked within us to give us this ability to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. The first reality we have to recognize when we understand that God has qualified us is that left to ourselves, we are not qualified. We don't meet the standard. We don't meet the mark. We are not qualified in and of ourselves to attain to this inheritance. Now, I think that probably one of the greatest examples of this is what we see John the Baptist saying regarding Jesus Christ. John is an amazing figure in Scripture. There's so much that he does. There's so much that he's used by God to do. He's the one who baptizes Jesus Christ um, in the river. Jesus says of John the Baptist that he is the greatest man born of women, of woman. Right? So there are immense accolades. If we think of, if we want to think of giants of the faith, John the Baptist would certainly fit the bill. How did John the Baptist view himself? How qualified did he view himself? And we see in Matthew chapter 3, 11, as he's speaking of the Messiah who's going to come, of Christ who's going to come, John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. When, when he uses this term, not worthy or worthy, it's the same word that Paul is using here. John the Baptist understood, left to himself, that he was not 
worthy. He was not worthy of Christ. He was not even worthy of carrying Christ's sandals. If you think about the least worthy aspect of who Jesus would be, and in that day and age, the sandals would be a filthy, dirty, disgusting thing. And yet John says, I'm not even worthy of the least worthiest aspect of who my Savior is. John recognized that left to himself, that he is nothing, that in comparison to Christ, he is nothing. So when Paul speaks to the Colossian believers and says that he, we have been qualified, my mind immediately goes to what John the Baptist is saying. Or what Paul himself says, that he is the chief of all sinners and the least of the apostles. And the apostle Paul had done amazing things by God's grace, yet he recognized fully and completely that it was God who did it, and it was not him. Boy, this really flies in the face of the world in which we live today. The world in which we live today says that you need to stand up for your rights. That you need to make sure you get what you have earned. That you need to be recognized for your contribution to the world. I, I can't remember who it is who said this, but the only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that requires our salvation. There is no qualification in and of ourselves. It is God who has qualified us to stand in him. Now, what is it that we are qualified to have? We are qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints, to share in the inheritance of the saints. Now, what is this inheritance? Now, we have to remember that Paul's audience in, Col in, the, in the town of Colossae, in this book of Colossians, is written primarily to Gentile believers, those who were alienated from God's people, those who were strangers to the promises made to Abraham, made to Isaac, made to Jacob. And when he speaks of the inheritance of the saints or the inheritance of the holy ones, the ones made holy, it has a very strong Jewish sound to it. And this was the reality that Israel had. They lived in constant expectation that they were going to receive something from God that had been promised to Abraham, that had been promised to Isaac, that had been promised to Jacob and to his children. They were constantly in anticipation of that inheritance because they were the people set apart, made holy by God. And they were expecting an inheritance. But for the Gentiles, this statement of having to be made qualified hits and rings home even stronger because they were not qualified. They, were not, they didn't have the right family tree. They didn't have the right genealogy. They were unqualified for this inheritance. They didn't have the ethnic or genealogical pedigree to be considered beneficiaries of this inheritance. But the reality is, Neither did the Jews either. If we look in Romans chapter 11, verses 15 through 20, Paul, writing here, speaks about how there were branches that were broken off. That Israel, because of their persistence in sin and rebellion, is broken off. And you, the Romans that Paul is writing to, the Gentiles... Although a wild olive shoot are grafted in among the others and we share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. And so his response is, don't be arrogant towards the branches. Those that have been cut off. Listen, the only reason you are here is because of God's grace. And then he says, this, if you are if 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 you are a part of that tree, remember, you don't support the root but rather it's the root that supports you. Now, what he's saying there, it's so significant to note, what makes someone worthy, what makes someone qualified is not what they have done, but rather what the source of their life has done. Who is the root of the tree? Jesus Christ. 
He is the one who provides this life-giving sustenance to support those who are grafted in. Now, how does that exhibit itself in our lives? He, he will, then you'll say, branches were broken off so that I may be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off, and here's the key. Why was Israel broken off? Because of their what? Unbelief. Because of their unbelief. The reality that we see with Israel's history is that it is a history of constantly turning not to the Lord, but away from the Lord. Trusting in foreign allegiances, trusting in their military might and prowess, trusting in the riches that they had, taking and and removing God from his place and placing the gifts that God has, has given them as their idols. And they did this over and over and over again. And they demonstrated that they were unqualified, not because they kept the law, not because... Or not because they didn't keep the law. Not, and, it, and it wasn't a matter of qualifying themselves because they kept the law perfectly. Rather, what was missing? Faith. And it is faith by which those who are qualified stand. Notice what he says at the end there in verse 20. You, but you stand fast. You hold firm because of faith. So... What is the response then that we're to have? If it is by faith that we are grafted in, that we are qualified to be a part of those who receive this inheritance, then what can never come into our lives? We're not to be what? Proud. Do not become proud, but fear. You know what the the expression of humility is? Thankfulness. Pride says, I don't need to give thanks to anyone. I'm the one who has produced what I've produced in my life. But humility shows itself through thankfulness. So how is it then that God has chosen to qualify us? It is through faith. Again, remember what is said in verses 2 and 3, or verse, uh, verse 3 of this passage. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, verse 4, since or because we heard of your what? Faith. We heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints. That inheritance in which we are qualified to share in is accessed by faith. And Paul begins this entire passage by giving thanks to God because of the Colossian believer's faith. And so it is for us. We should give thanks that we believe. Left to ourselves, we would not believe. And so we, we come in and recognize that this inheritance that we're, that we're qualified to participate in, that we're qualified to own, is ours fully and completely by the grace of God accessed through faith. So what is this inheritance that we unqualified in of ourselves, but that our faith given by the grace of God allows us to stand in? What is it? And I would argue it is the riches of the knowledge of God in Christ Jesus. It is being able to know Him. God is of such pure eyes that He cannot even look upon evil. He is holy. And He will only ever dwell with those who are holy, with that which is holy. And so when He speaks of the inheritance of the saints or the holy ones, That inheritance is knowing the living God. And this happens only through the God who said, let light shine out of darkness. He has shown in our hearts to give the light of what? The knowledge of the glory of God 
Where do we see that? In the face of Jesus Christ. This is that inheritance. And this is why Paul speaks of this share of the inheritance of the saints. Notice the last part. In light. That light is the knowledge of God's glory in Christ Jesus. It's knowing him fully and completely. It is that experience where we can now be qualified to enjoy a relationship with God where before we had no relationship with God. In fact, Paul is going to emphasize the importance of the light in verse 13 where he talks about how we were once living in what domain? The domain of what? Darkness. But we're transferred into the kingdom Paul says of his beloved son, and that kingdom is a kingdom of light. In fact, this was the entire purpose for which Paul was called as an apostle. Look at what he says in Acts 26. He's talking to King Agrippa. He's explaining his testimony. Notice what he says. Jesus meets him on the road to Damascus. He speaks to him, rebukes him for for persecuting Christ in the form of the church. And then Jesus says, rise and stand to your feet. And then notice, Jesus gives him the reason why he saved Paul. I have appeared to you for this purpose, so that you would be appointed as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you, so that you can do what to their eyes? Open their eyes. Now why do the eyes need to be opened? So that they may turn from what? Darkness to light. And from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are what? Sanctified. Those who are the saints by faith in me. You understand, Paul is essentially explaining that he's asking them to give thanks for what God has done and he is seeing the results of that in this church. Paul's ministry is having its effect by God's grace so much so that these believers in Colossae, who he had never met, who he had never gone to, yet through Paul's ministry to other people, they were experiencing these realities. They have a place among the sanctified. They are qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now, how can we not give thanks seeing that we are granted such an inheritance? How can we not respond with constant giving of thanks to God who has qualified us to share in this inheritance? That we can know Jesus Christ. That we can be turned from darkness to light and have that share That God has promised, promised all the way back to Abraham, promised before that to Noah, promised before that to Adam, that we get what God promised by faith. And so God has done so much in qualifying us for that inheritance. May he be glorified through our thanksgiving for the fact that we're qualified by faith. In Jesus Christ. But then Paul goes on and talks about more. So already he's described all the things that God has done for us. Knowledge and power and actions. And then he talks about how we're qualified to share in this incredible inheritance. Is that not enough to spend the rest of your life giving thanks to God? Yes. But he's not done. He goes on. To say that we are to give thanks for our deliverance. Notice what he says in verse 13. 
And it's interesting. It's almost sort of like a break in the way he's thinking. He's, all of these things are clauses that sort of run together. But then in verse 13, it's now a new sentence. And essentially what he's saying is this inheritance of the saints that we have in light, this is how it's accomplished. Verse 13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. We are qualified. To have our share in this inheritance of the saints and lives in light because God has delivered us from the domain of darkness. You see, the saints in light are the saints in light because they've been rescued from the night. Throughout Scripture, there is a clear, repetitive, continued motif of light versus darkness. And the reality is, is that darkness is the way in which everyone apart from Christ lives. They are caught in the darkness. Paul says it in Ephesians 6.12. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The reality is that Paul is saying is that and this was 2,000 years ago, and it continues to this day. Has the world gotten more light or less light? It's continued in darkness for those 2,000 years. And so when Paul says this present darkness, it's the same thing today. The world is in darkness. In Matthew 4, speaking of Jesus as he begins his ministry, right? notice what is said here. When Jesus hears that John the Baptist had been arrested, he withdraws into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. And then notice, all of these people including Israel and the Gentiles. These are people who are dwelling in what? Darkness. The people dwelling in darkness. And then the fulfillment of this is they, that there's going to be a day where they will see a great light. Who is that light? Jesus. In fact, that's the whole point of what Matthew is saying here. The light has come. They're no longer in, in the region of the shadow of death because Jesus comes and he tells them, repent. Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I think the first thing we have to recognize is that if we are to be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, into the kingdom of light, it begins by rejecting the darkness. That is why Jesus' ministry begins with those wor that word, repent. Repent. Turn from your life in darkness and turn to the light of Christ. That is why John speaks of how Jesus is the one who has life. And that life is light. The light of men. And then this is the glory. The light shines in the darkness. And this is the only time this has ever happened. Does the darkness overcome the light? No. The darkness has not overcome it. The light given to men is found only in Jesus Christ. Now, we, we have to recognize this exclusive call because no one else has the ability to Snatch us out of the darkness. That's why Jesus says he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes through the Father but through him. Because there's no one else who can give the light. Because he holds that light as life in and of himself. Now here's, here's the difficulty. And here's why we can go out on the streets. We can talk to friends and family. 
We can share the gospel with our coworkers. And over and over again, they will not accept the light of the gospel. Why? Because, as John says in John 3, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, this is judgment. The light has come into the world. Who's that light? Jesus. Did people love Jesus? Well, for a moment, they loved Jesus if he would allow them to continue and persist in darkness. But when it came down to a choice between darkness or light, what do people love? Darkness. People love the darkness rather than the light. Why do people love darkness? Well, he says, because their works were and are what? Evil. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. Why? Because when you stand in the light, what is exposed? Your works. This is why the gospel begins with repentance. We turn from active participation in wickedness and instead turn to be exposed in the light. Jesus does not say that a person who is doing or acting, or, or, and then notice, notice what he says here. Um, the person who does come to life, to, comes to the light, is doing what is what? True. He's doing or pursuing truth. That's why he comes to the light. Now think about this for a second. What does darkness allow you to do? It allows you to deceive. It allows you to deceive other people. So if, if what you do is done in darkness and they can't see what you're doing, then you can portray yourself in one way and still live evilly. Continuing in the darkness can cause you to deceive yourself so that you put up a facade of religious activities. And that's the thing you look to rather, but, but then you, you keep that at the forefront and then in the darkness behind your hypocrisy, you continue with an evil heart. So one who wants to remain deceitful stays in the darkness. They don't turn to the light. But rather those who are repentant they turn to the light, and this is the hard part. And this is where repentance comes and calls us to a high calling, something that can only be brought about by the grace of God. Because what happens when we step into the light is we are exposed. We're shown for who we are. We're no longer going to continue to perpetuate and conceal the lies of who we are in the darkness, but rather when we repent and turn from the darkness and step into the light, we are saying, this is who I am and all the ugliness of my sin and all the recognition of what my sin brings about. When we come to the light, we're exposed and we accept the truth of who we really are. That we are not good people. That we are not going after the right things, but rather that we are wicked. Notice what Jesus says here in John 3. If we are the ones who are seeking truth, pursuing truth, doing what is true, and we come to the light, that actual act of standing in the light is shown so it can be clearly seen that that work, stepping into light, who's the one who caused that? God did. That those works have been carried out by God. The very act of repentance itself, the first step taken when we step into the light, is carried about and performed through God's grace. It's not that the one who steps into the light figured it out on their own. It's not that they were 
were wise enough or, <coughs> excuse me, or had enough insight. Rather, the difference is the grace of God. God's grace granting repentance. So that we turn from walking in darkness and proceed to walk in the light. This is what John tells us in 1 John 1, 5-9. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you. God is what? Light. And in him is no darkness at all. So if you're going to know God, you're going to know someone who is absolutely and completely light. So, if we say that we have fellowship with him, but we walk in darkness, what are, we, are we pursuing truth? If we walk in darkness, we are not pursuing truth. We are pursuing what? Lies. We lie and do not practice the truth. Exact same thing that Jesus is saying in John chapter 3. The one who does truth steps into the light. The one who doesn't do truth, who is seeking lying and deceitfulness, they continue to walk in darkness. They're lying. They do not practice the truth. But then notice, if we're walking in the light as God is in the light, Then we have fellowship with one another. And then this is so key. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from how much sin? All sin. Here is the glory of stepping into the light by repentance and faith. The reality is, is that as we stand in the light, we are exposed for the sinful, wicked frauds that we are. That we are worthy of God's wrath. But there is a hopeful thing when we step into the light and are exposed because then as we repent and respond with faith in Christ, what does Jesus do with those sins? Forgives us cleanses us of all unrighteousness. When we come to the light, there is a wonder that our wicked deeds that are exposed are cleansed by the blood of Christ. This is what true repentance produces. Forgiveness of our sins. This is why we don't fear being exposed by the light. Because the more we see the sin within us, the more we recognize and experience the grace of God in saving us. And then notice what John anticipates is going to happen in the human heart. If we say we have no sin. Here's the reality that we can struggle with in our Christian lives. We can think that I'm doing all right. I've, I've matured. I've gotten better. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not falling into these sinful things. And praise God, that may be the case. But the minute that we let that become a means of pride and, and a focus for us, we begin to deceive ourselves and fall back into the darkness. And the truth is not in us. And yet there is this wonderful hope that if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess, say the same thing as what God's light says and has revealed about who we are, then in faith we look to Christ. Christ forgives us and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. What wondrous grace is this? Our response when the light of life, Jesus Christ, exposes our wickedness must be, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And praise God, he is merciful. And so this is why Jesus says, he is what? The light of the world. If we follow him, We will not 
Walk in darkness, but we will have the light of life. We will continually enjoy that life. Eternal light, bringing about eternal life in the Son of God. This is why the more we walk with Christ, the more we know Him, guess what else we know? Our sin. And we turn from that sin, and we become conformed more into His image. This is what it means to be transferred from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Seeing the light of Christ and letting that expose our sins and finding forgiveness in Him. Which brings us, this brings us finally to what we experience. And we've already sort of hit it, that we give thanks for that forgiveness. And this is what Paul, Paul ends this prayer with. In whom, in the Son, we have redemption. The forgiveness of sin. The final hope of those in the light is that we have not just merely an exposure of our wickedness, but a forgiveness in Christ that brought about through his redemption. Now, the reality is there is going to be a day when everyone will step into the light. God's light will expose everything. Peter says in 2 Peter 3.10 that the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will pass away, and with a war, the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be what? Exposed. I hate to say it, but we don't even know the depth of the wickedness of mankind. And on that day, God's glory will shine forth, and there'll be no place to hide. As Paul says in Romans 2.16, that on that day, according to his gospel, God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. That darkness that we sought to hide from our sin will not hold. God will expose all things. As the psalmist says, surely darkness shall, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. So, our wicked deeds will be exposed. The question is, will they be exposed by the grace of God as we step into the light, responding to the call of the gospel, and believing in Christ alone, and there finding redemption and forgiveness? Or will they be exposed on the final day of judgment when we are eternally judged for the sins that we thought nobody saw, but God did? This is the glories of our salvation, that we are delivered from darkness and transferred into the kingdom of His Son, that we have redemption and forgiveness in Christ. And so what should that drive? Giving Thanks. I think what we can do to respond to this is, first of all, read through the rest of Colossians chapter 1. Those who have been forgiven so much by Christ, they respond by having Christ as preeminent. And that's what he speaks of in the rest of Colossians chapter 1. Secondly, we must offer thankful praise constantly. I'd encourage you tonight, read Psalm 75. It's a short psalm, but it speaks about how we praise God and give thanks to Him for His marvelous works. And then He speaks about God's wrath, that it's held up like, a, like wine in a cup that's going to be poured out, but yet for David, for the psalmist, there's a wonderful hope that they'll continue to give thanks to God eternally. And then we... Respond by thanksgiving by walking in the light. Ephesians 5, 8 through 14. For though at one time we were darkness, now we are in the light of the Lord. Walk as children of light. We give thanks to the Father who's qualified us to this inheritance, delivering us 
from the domain of darkness and transferring us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So, Paul has prayed a lot. A lot of things that we've seen in these 11 verses in Colossians chapter 1. May we take these truths and grow by them, seek to have them in action in our lives by God's grace. Well, we finished it. Finished Colossians 1, 3 through 14. So what's coming up next? And so I wanted to discuss, and I'm glad that we have people online because when we start with this new series, it's not going to be broadcast because of copyright issues. Some of you may remember um, a while ago we showed a documentary called Puritan. And I only showed you, it was like a two and a half hour long documentary and we saw it in I think three, three sections. But that's only the tip of the iceberg of the content that we have available for that. And so beginning in April, and I'm not sure exactly when in April, we're going to begin this study where we're going to start looking at the Puritans, looking at, at them individually, then looking at some of the things that they believed and seeking to see how that can apply to us today. And so involved in that is going to be a workbook. If you'd like to be a part of this study, um, there's a sign-up sheet on the back table so we can order these workbooks in bulk. Um, and I think it'll be a very helpful thing for you. So again, that's going to begin uh, sometime at middle or late April. Looking forward uh, to that. <coughs> Let's uh, close in prayer. Father, thank you for transferring us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved Son. Father, may we live lives of full and complete thanksgiving. Lord, work in our hearts. Thank you for this prayer that Paul offered for the saints in Colossae. Father, take your word, apply it to our hearts. We pray this in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. Thank you for joining us online. Thanks for joining us here in person. Have a great week.